Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, would love for you to open it now to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's on page 807 in your pew Bibles, page 807. We, uh, we've been taking our cues over this Christmas season from the song Joy to the World, the old uh, Christmas carol, Joy to the World. It has four verses, and uh, we kind of identified four Sundays of Christmas, and uh, so this is the third for, uh, for this series, and then we'll do the fourth verse next Sunday. And we're not preaching on the verse per se, but we're using the verse to guide us into Scripture. And so this morning we're being guided by verse 3, which says, No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Which raises the question, two questions for me anyway, how far had the curse of sin spread? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So that's the problem, how far had it spread? And then the second question is, what did Jesus do to fix it? That's what we're gonna talk about today. Because understanding that takes us very close to the heart of the heart of the heart of the true meaning of Christmas. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was the verse read to us so well by Ellie. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, before you close your Bible, hopefully if you have your Bible, a real Bible, just leave it open for a second and look at it. And you'll notice as you do that the passage that we just read is on the first page of the New Testament. But as I said just a minute ago, it's on page 807 of the Pew Bible, which means that, of course, it is not the beginning of the story. So to figure out why page 807 is such a big deal, you actually have to go back, flip backwards in your Bible to read some of the things that come before. You see, by the time that Jesus arrived into the world, everyone had been convinced that there was a pretty significant problem. Everyone in the covenant community understood that there was a pretty significant problem. And the problem was that it is hard for a holy God to bless a sinful people. Moms and dads, uh, you understand that. Maybe not moms and dads of little ones yet, but moms and dads of older ones understand this very well. Would you put more money into the bank account of your 21-year-old child living away from home, spiraling out of control, falling deeper and deeper into an addiction to drugs? Would you put more money into their account? I'm guessing you'd be very nervous about doing that. You would be concerned, wisely so, 
that doing that, even though you meant it as love, would actually result in harm to your child. And so you would insist that they go to rehab first, that they get healthy first before you turn the taps back on and fill up their account. And that's exactly where we are at the end of the Old Testament story. The disease and corruption of sin has been spreading, so much so that it is now effectively blocked and cut off the blessings of God. And that's why the climax of the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel is phrased the way it is in verse 21. Matthew says, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's very interesting. By the end of the Old Testament, the covenant community had become convinced, people of faith like Mary had become convinced that the greatest problem that they faced as a nation was not Rome. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what what we would identify today as the greatest problem that we're facing as Christians, as the covenant community. But, But they'd come to the conclusion that the biggest problem was not Rome, The biggest problem was not the political dysfunction of the three-headed monster that ruled the nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? The the priestly castes, the the rabbi castes, the aristocrats. No, 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 that, that wasn't the issue. The biggest problem was sin. It was everywhere, and it had changed everything about them. And that's why the announcement of Jesus' birth was greeted as such big news. Jesus was going to fix what was wrong with him. A good Savior knows what's wrong with you and is able to fix what's wrong with you, and that's what everyone was so excited about. That's what verse 3 in Joy to the World is talking about. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So in the few minutes that we have this morning, I just want to try and answer two questions. We're going to keep it very simple. I didn't even know we had visuals, but it appears that all of a sudden we do. It's a Christmas miracle. God bless you back there. So I may not even be as simple as I thought I would have to be, but here are the two simple questions we're just going to ask this morning. Number one, how far was the curse of sin found? And then number two, what did Jesus do to fix it? So how far was it found? In terms of mapping out the spread and creep of sin in the Old Testament era, I think it would probably be helpful to start with the story of King Solomon. We often say to the kids, and I don't know whether the kids come back and say it to mom and dad, I have no idea, but we often say to the kids downstairs in Sunday school that David and Solomon are like an arrow shot at the sun. They point us in the right direction before ultimately falling tragically short. And isn't that true with both David and Solomon? The reign of David and Solomon in the Bible uh, is just called typology. Typology means establishing a pattern. So a type, the Greek word type means pattern or blueprint. So the stories of David and Solomon together represent the golden age in the Old Testament. It's the high water mark. Uh, Remember the story of the Queen of Sheba? The Queen of Sheba story usually is treated by Bible scholars as the high water mark. Because all, all the promises had been that the nations would begin to come to learn the ways of God from the people of God in Jerusalem. And that started to happen under Solomon. His fame had spread so far that kings and queens from other countries were coming to learn the ways of God. And, and, and people were prosperous in the, in the, if you've been reading through the RMM, in the close of the Solomon narrative, it says, in the days of Solomon, gold became as common as silver throughout the land. That's a way of saying they were incredibly prosperous 
They were living the ways of God. They were shining, modeling the ways of God. People were coming to see. So that was the high water mark. But then, of course, you know that in the story of Solomon, there is a turning point. So that's like the arrow shot at the sun. You could see it going up and up and up. And at one point in the story, you're tempted to wonder, is Solomon Jesus? But then he's not. There's the turn. Do you remember where the turn is? It's narrated for us in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 4. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. It must have been an expensive Christmas. Can you imagine? Who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So that really is the TSN turning point in the entire biblical narrative or the the history of the nation of of Israel, isn't it? Things were on the upswing in David's time. Things were on the upswing again in the early days of King Solomon. And then when Solomon was was older, he loved many foreign wives. Right, Right here in Solomon's heart, you can identify the turn. The turn happened when he began to love in the wrong direction, which is very interesting and very conviction or convicting I think in our culture because in our culture we don't often question the goodness of love do we we say well love is love and love is all you need hmm but according to the bible the wrong love can lead you astray the bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it Sin can cause our heart to lean in the wrong direction. And if we give in to that, if we follow our hearts, like the kindergarten pageant always tells you to do, if you follow your heart, it can lead you in some very dangerous directions. That's what happened to Israel. And it would have been reckless of God to continue blessing them while they were on that path. If the story of Solomon illustrates how sin had corrupted the desires of God's people, Then the story of Asa illustrates how sin had affected their emotions. Asa started off as one of the most, if not the most, promising of the kings of Israel. Uh, Some things are said about Asa early in his reign that are said about no one else. Uh, He was just so promising. The Bible says about him, and Asa did what was right and good in the eyes of of the Lord his God. At one point in the story, it says that his heart was wholly true. Remember, part of the problem with Solomon is that his heart was divided. Esau, other than David, is the only king that I'm I'm aware of, unless I've missed something, that says at one point in the story anyway, that his heart was wholly true to the Lord. He started off so well. He even, he had convictions. He even fired his mother for engaging in idolatry. How about that? Second Chronicles 15, 16 says, even Makah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. How about that? Can you imagine firing your mother for engaging in wrong worship? 
That takes some serious courage. I, I, I hope that I would have the courage to do that. Not that that would ever be necessary, Mom. I'm just saying, took a lot of courage. Interestingly, though, at one point, Esau's story, like Solomon's, took a turn. Esau made a bad decision, and God sent a prophet to rebuke him for it. Esau didn't like that. The Bible says this, 2 Chronicles 16.10, Then Esau was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Esau inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. Isn't that interesting? So Esau had a temper tantrum. How dare God rebuke me? I am one of the most pious and righteous men in the history of Israel. How dare God send some peasant prophet to rebuke me? He had a temper tantrum. And he actually began to act out his anger on the people. His anger got out of control, led him into a very dark place, and he never fully recovered. When he was old, he became sick, and even as a sick man, he refused to call out to the Lord. Second Chronicles 16, 12 says, Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Asa died nursing his wounded pride. How incredibly sad. And yet also how incredibly common. Sin makes us emotionally unstable. When we're doing well, it tips us towards pride. When we're doing poorly or when we go through a difficult season or when someone rebukes or corrects us, it tips us towards depression. And that makes us dangerous to ourselves and to others. Once desire and emotion are tainted by sin, then inevitably that corruption will also show up in action and behavior. And no story illustrates that progression better than the story of King Manasseh, one of the very last kings of Judah in the Old Testament era. In 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6, the Bible says, listen, listen to this about King Manasseh. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnon and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is a king of Judah. By the time King Manasseh was on the throne. The people of Judah had become worse, actually, than all the nations around them. Can you even imagine that? Second Chronicles 33, 9 says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's pretty bad. When the covenant community is actually worse than the surrounding nations, you are very near the end of that story. And that's where they were. The people of God were corrupted, root and branch. They had been deceived, diminished, and destroyed by the creeping, spreading influence of sin. And it would have been wrong. It would have been unwise. It would have been unloving for God to continue to bless them while they were in that condition. So that was the problem. So how did Jesus fix it? Well, according to the Bible, he did it first and foremost by removing the clog. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.13 talks about that. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So think of it this way. On the cross, Jesus absorbed, attracted to himself all the sins of his people. Jesus used the analogy of drinking from a cup. And so 
the idea seems to be that when we confess our sins through faith in Christ, they are, as it were, poured into the cup, and Jesus drinks the cup. He becomes a sin sponge. He takes it all onto His person on the cross. The Bible uses that kind of language. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin. Jesus became a sin sponge. He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus gathers to Himself all the sin of His people. He absorbs and obliterates it as He attracts the fire and wrath of Almighty God. Like lightning from heaven, justice leaps forth and sin is consumed. It drives Jesus down to hell and death But thanks be to God, death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him. He rises again, leaving our sin forever behind. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible says. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thanks be to God. That's how Jesus removes the clog and contamination of sin. But there's more. Not only does He remove the clog, but He cleanses and renews the entire system by releasing the Holy Spirit of God. According to the Bible, Jesus rose bodily from the dead, and then 40 days later, He ascended into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, He poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. That's the one-two punch of redemption. I've said this before, and, and you probably don't need to hear it because we've said it so many times before, but sometimes as evangelicals, I think we overly narrow the gospel. And this is somewhat inevitable. We wear crosses around our necks, not empty tombs, right? Uh, It's somewhat inevitable. We wear, you know, if you really want to fully celebrate the gospel, you'd probably need a manger, uh, some sort of uh, charm that represented an obedient life. Then you'd need a cross. Then you'd need an empty tomb. Then you'd need some kind of up arrow. And then you'd need some kind of down. Like, the gospel is actually a slightly bigger category than, than most of us allow in our minds. And we, we can narrow the gospel down to Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Well, yes, He did. But of course, we know it is a bigger story than that. It, we wouldn't be here on Christmas Sunday in a snowstorm if we didn't understand that. Because of course, had Jesus not been born of a virgin, there is no gospel. Had Jesus not lived an obedient life, There is no gospel. You understand that, right? If Jesus had sinned, as other people do, then his death would merely have been the death that he owed to God. So he had to take on human flesh because what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. So he had to be born of a virgin. He had to live an obedient life. He had to die on the cross. He had to rise again to show God's approval of the price that had been paid. It's like I always say, when you, when you stick, this will soon become irrelevant as an illustration because I've even learned to tap. My daughter taught me to tap. Thank you, Madison. Uh, but this will soon become irrelevant. But remember, you used to put your Interact card into the little machine, and then you'd type your password in, and then you'd wait. It was always an anxious couple of seconds, wasn't it? And then it would say, payment uh, accepted, remove card. That's the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead to demonstrate God's approval for the price that has been paid and to prove to all of us that there is, in fact, life beyond the grave. Would, would you die for your faith if you weren't absolutely sure of that, that there was something? In fact, I would argue it'd be foolish to die for your faith 
if there wasn't the assurance of life beyond death. But because of the resurrection, it is not foolish to die for your faith. In fact, it's perfectly reasonable because you will live for eternity on the other side of whatever small number of years you live for Jesus on this earth. But even there's more. There's more even than the resurrection. There'd be no gospel without the ascension because if there was not a human being in the flesh right now in the presence of God, then we would have no assurance that one day we would be there as well. And if Jesus was not right now as a human being, by the way, have you, do you ever stop to think about that? Jesus didn't leave his flesh on the earth. He ascended in the flesh to the Father's right hand where he, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 7, where he lives evermore to make intercession for us. So right now there is a human being in the presence of Almighty God whispering into God's ears those prayers that are delivered into his heart by the prayers of his people. Isn't that amazing? There'd be no salvation without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, sometimes we narrow it down to the cross, but think about that. What the, I hate to use the word merely when talking about the glory of the cross, but what the cross gives us is a new heart and a clean conscience. But brothers and sisters, that's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. They had a heart undefiled, unwarped, undamaged, undiseased by sin, and they still made a terrible choice. And so what we have is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to teach us to want all that is honoring and glorifying to God. Now, that happens slowly. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror, are being changed. So if you're truly saved, then this process is happening. Are being changed, but it's slow, by one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so slowly but surely, inside of you, the Holy Spirit begins to work and change what you want. That's the one, two. I say the one, two punch, but I guess it's really more like the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven punch of salvation. It's a knockout blow. And it is exactly what the Bible prophesied. Near the end of the Old Testament era, like, again, I, I not to, I, I don't suppose it's beating a dead horse, banging my drum. Is that the right idiom? There we go. Not to overbang this drum, but I really can't recommend more highly to you. Any, I can't recommend too highly to you the, the discipline of whole Bible reading in a year. I use the RMM Bible reading plan. I don't care what plan you use. Find a plan and use it. But I will say this. The more you read the Old Testament, the more you love Jesus. It really, in my mind, it is as simple as that. I feel like my understanding of Jesus was about this wide until I started reading the Old Testament. And, and now it's this wide. It just makes so, so much more sense to me. As you read the Old Testament, what you see unfolded for you is the real problem and the great promise. So we've talked about the real problem. The great promise comes in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. The Holy Spirit led them to the understanding of what was wrong with them and what was needed as a solution. And so here God promises it, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And here's the, here it is right here. And cause you to walk in my statutes. 
and be careful to obey my rules. There it is. God promises to remove the clog and release the Spirit so as to heal our hearts and to lead us back to the path of blessing. And that's why the birth of Jesus is such good news, because he came to do it all. He came to fix exactly what was wrong with us. He came to extract and obliterate the curse and stain of sin. He came to strengthen and renew us by the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. He came to make us the people we were created and intended to be. He came to put us and all creation back on track before the Lord. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world, brothers and sisters, and thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this great gospel story that begins right here in this quiet, lowly place. Lord, we are thankful that, as you reminded us in the parable of the mustard seed, lots of earth-shattering, huge, massive, important things begin very, very, very small. And so it is here. The gift that changed the world began as a tiny little baby in a manger. It is a wonderful story, all the more so because it is true. And we give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.